We're going to look at, I, I asked you to turn to James 4, but I'm going to read it in a moment. And I, I believe you got two hands, at least the capacity to kind of put a finger there or a marker. And I want to start in a couple of verses to set the stage because I want to punctuate something that I think this section is built around that shows up in other spaces. And the first one is in Luke chapter 8. And I want to punctuate the problem what it is we're dealing with as it relates to followers of Christ. And there's just some kind of colorful connections, helpful connections, I think, in different sections of the Scripture that relate to our subject and how we deal with it. So this is the parable of the sower, seed, the gospel falling on the soil of the human soul. And one of the kind of consequences or outcomes among some, when the seed of the gospel falls on that soil, it's impacted by certain realities, whether it bears fruit, whether it accomplishes its potential supernatural work. Look at verse 14. The seed, that's the gospel, Jesus talking, which fell among the thorns. So when it was cast by the sower, it landed among thorns. These are the ones, these are human beings who have heard. They hear the gospel. They're at Grace Church. They hear it. There's some place where they hear the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They hear the fact that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They hear the fact that salvation is not by work, but by God's amazing grace through his work, through his son, like a gift. They receive it by faith no worker of their own, and they obtain a righteousness that's impeccable before God, the righteousness of Christ. They hear that story, that news. That news falls upon those fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, so they've heard it, they've been affected by it, but as they go on their way, they are choked. They are choked with worries riches, and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And our passion for pleasure can keep you, listen to me, from the life of God, from the transformation of the grace of God. Pleasure, it's a problem. This passion within us for self-satisfaction. First Second Peter chapter 1 Second passage by way of introduction and beginning. Talking again about the marvelous grace of God. Second Peter chapter 1, grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power, so it's God's power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, glory, his glory and his excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Man, what a great statement. Precious, magnificent, large, big, bombastic, bombastic promises so that we can become, watch this, partakers sharers of the divine nature. We don't become God, we experience the life of God. 
transformed, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit. Now look at the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by here translated lust, desire. The desire for self-satisfaction. The pleasures of this world cannot only deny us the life of God, choke it. We come out of a world corrupted by it. And the grace of God is the means by which we're delivered and rescued from that corruption. You know what corruption is. It's rust. It's cancer. It's what could have been is eaten away. It's degenerative. It's not life-giving. And the powerful promises of God have been granted by grace to us so we can share his nature and we can be delivered from that corruption. Pleasures and passions are a problem. They're corrupting. They're choking. One final passage, Titus chapter 3. Because I'm going to punctuate the problem of pleasure. This passion that we possess in our humanity stimulated and catalyzed by the world that is oriented towards the delusion that satisfaction can come either from me or from the world around me. Titus chapter 3. Paul writing to Titus, tell the church, tell them, remind them, verse 1, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Look at verse 3. Why do you show consideration for all men? Because you used to be like those men. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Foolish is dumb. It's the word mind with a big X over it. You acted as if you had no brain. Dumb disobedient, deceived. Now, what's the next statement say? Enslaved. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And as a slave, driven by and drawn to the self-satisfaction of my pleasures and my appetites. The word lust is epithumia. It's a passionate desire. The lust tells you that it's inherently a negative thing, but frankly, it's a human thing. I have desires. And those desires represent pleasures I want to experience. And before the gospel of God came into my life, I was a slave to those things. And as a consequence to that slavery, look at the last part of verse 3. Spending our life, in other words, using it up. This precious life, limited time, this season, spending it. Spending our life in malice, that's spite, envy, wanting what you have, hateful because you have it and I don't have it, hating one another. And then verse 4, the kindness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his love for mankind appeared, and he rescued us. Right? 
Here's where I want to start today. I want to sensitize you to your awareness that inherent in your fallen humanity is an affectionate, yearning passion for self-satisfaction. And it is a slave. You become a slave to it. It's a slave master. It'll choke the life of God. It may keep you from experiencing the gospel of God. It chokes it off. It's corrupting. What you could be, you will never be, because if you associate and satisfy and drink at that, we say, come thou fount of every blessing. There is a fountainhead of life, and it's not in the world, and it's not found in you or anyone around you. Pleasure is a problem. If that pleasure prompts you to find satisfaction out of the fountainhead of the life of God. If it distracts you, this world around you. All right, ready? James chapter 4. That's the setup. I just kind of ran into those verses, and I thought this would be a good reminder Verse 1, chapter 4, James, to the church at Jerusalem, the church has been scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. James, in order to help converted believers evaluate their faith and live out their faith, in essence, this is what the gospel looks like when you live it out, exhorts them in this way, with a question, frankly, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So he points to a problem. And he says, what is the reason for that problem? And then he answers, is not the source. The reason there are conflicts, battles, verbal and actual, relational division. It's not just because of the wisdom that's earthly, demonic, and fleshly, chapter 3 at the end, that you're exercising. Members of the body, members of the community, or the members of your individual body. It's like you have this boiling conflict inwardly. You've got division and conflict within you, this battle. Some of us can relate to that more often than we'd like to confess. And secondly, our relationships in our family with family members or in church with church members is a reflection of this passion, which is a problem. Not because in my humanity, desire is wrong. I'm built as a human being with passion. But that passion will never be satisfied through sources that are not God or the means of grace provided by God. Verse 2, here's a descriptor. You lust, you desire, you have passion, and you don't have, so you commit murder. So zealous, it doesn't matter what it costs or what action I have to take, I'm desperate to obtain something. You are envious. I want what you have, and I can't obtain it. Verse 2, so you fight and quarrel. That's your reality. Is this not the source? Verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask, which is the first clue and indicator. The problem isn't my passions, the having or the wanting. It's the source by which I seek to find that satisfaction. You don't ask. God, the fountain, 
You have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. We saw it last week, Jeremiah 2. You've forsaken me. Who does that? That's what he said to Israel. And you have dug for yourselves, Jeremiah 2, verse 13, water pots, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You're a self-satisfier, and it's futile. Not only does the water pot secure runoff water, impure, muddy, contaminated water, it's got holes in it. That's the problem. You don't ask me. Do you forget who I am? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. He's not different today than he was yesterday or the day before. If he did not spare his own son, Romans says, will he not freely give us all things to enjoy? The problem with me is not my passions. The problem with me is passions that seek solutions outside of the divine provision. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, you ask, so you deploy the wrong method, and then you redeploy that method for the wrong reason, self-satisfaction. You ask, you don't need. So God has it. It's not like he's not willing to give it, but there's a corruption in you, and it is a selfish satisfaction. You ask with wrong motives. Verse 3, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's about you. Worldliness, which is what this is about, this section, is the product of prioritizing me over him, me over you, and recognizing or believing and acting as if the solution is in the world They can manage to control or manipulate to satisfy my appetite. It's about me. Worldliness is a perspective. I'm going to say this very plainly. I want you to hear it. That denies God as the solution for the appetites and hunger of my human heart. Worldliness is a perspective that prioritizes me over him and a pattern that picks the world over him a life path that partners with the world instead of God. An attitude expressed by the activity that makes me more important than God, a worldview that puts my pleasures and priorities in the primary place. And I live in a way that reveals that I believe the world and not God is the path to the fulfillment of my passions and the source of the satisfactions for my pleasures, my appetites, my longings, which is why verse 4 says, we're inclined to and often become, and they are unfaithful. They're betrayers of a betrothal trust, a covenant of relationship. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship, which is essential if you're going to be a self-gratifying solver of your own passions and pleasures. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, 
whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. In other words, it's not, look, as a Christian, you can be distracted and tempted. You can struggle with getting off course and misappropriating your priorities and your assets. This is talking to the person, certainly would include me when I do that, but it's particularly talking to the, somebody who's chosen and wishing to make a relationship, a, a covenant with the world, a friend of the world, an alliance with the world, someone who wishes to be a friend of the world. It's a word for your will. You're actually choosing. You know what I think? I don't think God either loves me, cares about me, is going to honor those precious and powerful promises. I'm going to handle this myself. It's a little bit like the Abraham transaction. I made your promise for a son. I get the offer of a handmaid. Okay. I'll solve, even if my wife agrees, a passion and a priority that I desire, a son. I'll actually think this is the promise of God. Oh, and I'll utilize this solution. This is a choice to become a friend of the world. And when you do that, you not only show hostility toward God, I do, but I become his enemy. That means I become God's adversary. Anybody want to be labeled the enemy of God? Forecast for your future is not very good. Talk about frustration, futility, and a life of broken actions and choices and relationships. If that's appealing to you, pick the world. Someone has written, enmity with God is in fact hostility against God. That's the root of the word. Since the world is arrayed against him. If neighbor... If neither, rather, obeys it neither, this friendship with God, it neither obeys his laws, submits to his claims, or seeks to honor him. To love that world is therefore to be arrayed against God. Why? Because it doesn't obey his laws, it doesn't submit to his claims, and the world doesn't seek God's honor. So when I choose the world as my ally and resolution for my satisfactions, I'm arrayed against God and the ways of God. And the spirit that would lead us to this is, in fact, the spirit of hostility. That's cool. Did somebody lean on the lights? <laughs> By the way, did you expect a little smoke earlier? <laughs> you know, a little light show? Verse 5. This is where we kind of ended last week. Verse 5 is illuminating. Verse 5 is meant to do one of two things, and the only reason I'm saying one of two things is because good translators have translated this in two different ways. Verse 5 is either meant to tell you why God feels the way he does about your infidelity. Or verse 5 says, this is why you do what you do, even though you recognize this is a problem. Verse 5 in the New American Standard sounds like this. 
Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Now listen, if you Google this verse, you're not going to find it in the Bible. This is the collective Scripture and its revelation. There's no specific verse that says these words. Do you think the Scripture generally speaks to no purpose in its general revelation, which you can summarize this way, He, capital H, that would be a reference to God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. So the reason God calls you an adulterer and an enemy is because you're in a relationship that that somehow is an obstacle to the intimacy he wants to enjoy with either the Holy Spirit he has put in you or the human spirit, the breath of life he has placed within you. In other words, he is a jealous God, a zealous God for the relationship he desires to have for you, the one he bought and paid for, the one that he shares a covenant with you. You've made a covenant. You're a member of the new covenant In his blood, you've been blood-bought. You're part of the bride of Christ. This is a problem from God's vantage point. And God is a jealous God. It's all over the Old Testament. They have stirred me to jealousy with that which is no God. Deuteronomy 32, 21. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is not wrong to be zealous for a relationship. It can turn green with jealousy, it can become ugly, it can become hurtful, but it's not wrong to be passionate about a relationship that matters and commitments that you share. There's a kind of jealousy that is godlike. It's a zeal for the relationship. Zacharias hears God say, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. So could this read... God's jealous for the spirit he's put in you, whether it's his spirit, the Holy Spirit placed in you at salvation, or your human spirit at your birth, a living person. There's another way to take this. That's option A, why God feels so strongly about your affection for the world and your satisfactions via its means. The second way to take this is, why am I constantly challenged? What's wrong with me? Hearing these words, I get it, I do it, what's the problem? This is the King James. The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Literally, in the Greek language, with envy. This is how the verse reads, with envy. And the word envy is only used negatively in the Bible. It's never like a good thing. It's zeal that's corrupted. It's desire that is soured. It's soured due to the influence of sin. It's a miserable, it results in a miserable train of blame. And it's glad when someone else loses what you want. It's that word. With envy, yearns, that's passionate desire, this passionate affection. It's different than epithumia, I just desire. This is, man, I I love this. This yearning 
that is the expression of my loving is corrupted with a sour note. Verse literally says, with envy, and I'm going to argue, therefore not God, yearns the pneuma, the spirit, and I'm going to argue the human spirit, which he, God, has made to dwell in us. Verse 5, I think, is an explanation of my problem. I have in my humanity, because of the fall of Adam, this passionate affection which is corrupted by envy. It's soured. Therefore, I have a big struggle not being an adulterer or the enemy of God. I have a hard time submitting by faith my solutions to God because I have this unending engine in me, yearning. The word yearning is a present tense verb. It's an action. It's an everyday engine. You don't have to get up and turn it on. Get up today. What comes natural to me today is a passionate yearning for satisfaction that wants what I don't have. And if you have it, God help you. And God help me. That's what my problem is. Either way, can I say this? It's a problem. And it needs a solution. Which is the heart of the good news. Because look, how, how, how am I going to deal with this? Because my propensity is the denial of God. And you could argue, option one, despite the desire of God to be in union, intimate union with me, I have this problem, this inherent problem. Is there no hope for my worldliness or my broken humanity? This engine that is working daily to seek satisfaction because of the fallenness of my soul. Well, I love the first word in verse 6. You read it, one, three letters, B-U-T, but, that's an adversative, but, despite, despite, the fact that we are constantly fighting with one another, driven by deep longings for pleasure, property, position, prestige, though we're driven by envy to possess what others already have, that's verses 1 and 2, despite the fact that we are often governed by a worldly mentality, which says I will derive pleasure from the world no matter what it costs, I will demand satisfaction by way of worldly means, dominated by worldly motives, and despite the fact that we, by so doing, ignore God as the source of life, we fail to pray, we manipulate our own way, despite the net effect of that foolish, ungodly behavior is that we develop an unholy dependence and affection for the world, that's verse 4, becoming its friend, betraying the love relationship and an adulterous connection with the adversary of God, who earnestly and deeply longs for exclusive fellowship with us, interpretation option A, or the spirit that dwells in us, seeking satisfaction and passion for the world around us, despite this inherent intrinsic battle or the passion of God for the spirit he has placed within me, despite all of that, but, do you see it? Do you feel it? But God does what? He gives greater grace. 
In spite of this bad news about our ungodliness, we have by way of this but some of the, on the other hand, good news. And listen to me, this is great news. This is not just salvation news. This is access to life that's truly life news. By grace, God gives to static present. It's always true. This present tense verb means there's never a time, not a moment, not a day, not a week, not a month, not a situation. There's never a time God does not give greater grace. Grace is God's horsepower, God's ability. It's not just unmerited favor. In this context, it involves strength, spiritual ability, spiritual capacity. It's God's help and power. And James declares this grace is greater. Greater than what? Greater than my propensity that is within me. Greater than the power of the attraction around me. Greater than the enemy who manipulates the cosmos around me. The tempter and the temptation. God's grace is greater than all the bad news. Greater than the sin of spiritual adultery we're presently committing or by choosing the world and its adornments over God. This is an unparalleled promise of hope. An unparalleled promise that flows despite the tireless, endless engine of worldly desire that's at work in me, the frustration, the futility, the infidelity, despite all of that. So if you're buried, you came in here today and the first part of this buried you or last week buried you, you go, you know what, that's me. Let me tell you what else is available to you. Greater grace. The horsepower of heaven to grant you the capacity to be faithful. To grant you the capacity to trust a God to give what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. To believe that Jesus Christ came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Listen, the precious promises, everyone is true. In Jesus Christ, it's amen. It's guaranteed. What's not manipulatable, what's not controllable, is timing and the dispensing. Because God has purposes that are perfect. The reason Abraham got really old and the reason Sarah's womb was dead was because providence and sovereign God has a purposeful plan to reveal through the miraculous conception a preview of the ultimate conception. Somebody's shaking up back there. (laughs) The wind of the Holy Spirit, the whole room shook. Did anybody write that down? I don't know what I just said, but it must be notable. All right, now, now listen, here's the big question. Why is this not happening more often to me? Why am I not the living expression of the gospel lived out in a way that's a friend of God, not a fickle, futile friend of the world? Why is it I always double back and drink from broken water pots? Because the greater grace 
has some qualifiers that allow you to access it. The rest of the verse tells you there is a condition for receiving God's grace. It's not merited like you earn it, but there's a quality of mind and attitude that allows you to receive it. It's like sin. If I live in sin, it's not that God's arm is short, that he cannot save, or his ear closed, that he cannot hear. Your sin separates you from God. It's not a God problem. It's a Harry problem. It's not a grace issue. It's a receiving issue. So look at what the end of, or the next part of verse 6 says. Therefore, connected to the greater grace, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is the qualifying condition? Humility. What is the disqualifying condition? Pride. God will not dance grace to those who are too proud to admit they need it. He will resist them. The word pride has lots of nuances, flavors. It means to have, essentially, an overhigh opinion of yourself. You just have too big of an opinion of you. Your head's up, I'm somebody. Your nose is up, I'm better than you. Pride means to elevate yourself. There's another word for pride. It shows up in 1 Timothy 3 when it talks about don't elevate a novice, lest he be lifted up in pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That Greek word for pride is to be enveloped in smoke, which is where you get the idea of blinded by pride. Myself. (laughs) The greater grace, I lost it. There it is, it's back. Not humble enough. (laughs) Harry's full of pride and you're watching it in real time. Maybe that's a good illustration. That's exactly how it works. (laughs) Tufao, the word in 1 Timothy 3, is to be enveloped in smoke. It's to be in the clouds. A cloud created by the misconceptions that I have about me and my capacity. I'm a blind man. I'm not just a, I elevate, Harry. I can't see because of the manufactured false perspectives I have about me. And this verse says that the person, verse 6, who needs greater grace will not receive it if they're proud. Actually, God's your adversary. He's working against you. Would you flip back to Isaiah chapter 3? I'm just give you a flavor of this. And, and, and let me just give a qualifier at the beginning. I really wrestled with how fast to do these sectors. There's going to be 10 verbs and five categories that are the conditions of true humility. And I was tempted. I'm going to just rocket through them. But I want you to feel this, and I want you to see this, because this is baseline. And baseline to your Christianity and your victory over the world and the passions of your heart and the peacemaking 
Isaiah's illustration of this, verse 16, God talking to the women of Judah. You get the flavor of this because when it says resist, it means work against. And the resistance in this case, listen to me, is the removal of the assets that are part of your delusion. Verse 16, moreover, the Lord said, Isaiah 3, so Yahweh talking, because the daughters of Zion are proud, okay, the heart pride, and walk with heads held a high with seductive eyes. The seductive eyes is the manipulative tool that these women are using to secure their passions by virtue of their attractions. And they go along with mincing steps, and they tinkle the bangles on their feet. So they're decorated for an attraction for satisfaction. Now look at what God does to proud women who seek to satisfy through their garb and their seductive eyes. Therefore, so they have inward pride, which expresses itself in outward behavior. Verse 17, therefore the Lord... Therefore, because of their pride, inward and expressed outward, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. And Yahweh will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festival robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and, uh, turbans and veils. Now, did anybody wonder why we have to name all the decorations? Because nothing's left out. I'm going to take it all away. I don't care how minor of a contributor it is, it's going. Verse 24, now it came, it will come about because of your pride and its expression. Instead of sweet perfume, there'll be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. And it won't just affect you. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn and deserted she will sit on the ground. Now the reason I chose this is not because it's the only space we could have looked at to watch God's normative response to pride. We could have taken a hard look at Nebuchadnezzar saying, look at the city I built. Next thing you know, he's grazing like a cow with fingernails like an, a bird, hair that's seven seasons he cycled because of his pride until he humbled himself and said, oh, there's a God in heaven and it isn't me. There's one God, it isn't me. He rules over everything. This passage is meant to graphically express what it means to be opposed by God. God opposes the proud, the person who believes, I got this. I can work this out myself. I can self-gratify. I can self-satisfy. And this whole engine in me that seems to be unmanageable, I got this. You know what I am? I'm disciplined. You know what I am? I'm a hard worker. 
And guess what you are? Proud. And guess what that does? It results in an adversary who's going to take away and blow away the smoke of my delusion. On the other hand, James says, he gives grace to the humble. Remember what grace is? God horsepower. Look at verse 10, where the paragraph ends. Kind of the sandwich punctuation. Well, I'm going to argue humility is the big idea. Humble yourselves. You know why? That's preferable to the God humbling. I like my hair. I like all fingers that work. And that's a reference to the one that's not working. I would rather give it up than God take it away. I'd rather, humble means to lower yourself, to see yourself for who you really are, put yourself in the appropriate space, both inwardly and outwardly. Listen, I'm valuable because I bear the image of God. I'm not worthless. No human being's worthless. I don't care if they live on the street under an underpass. They're made in the image of God. That's intrinsic, inherent value. And if you're a Christian, you've been doubly blessed because you've been purchased with great price and you don't buy things that aren't of worth and you don't spend a lot for something that doesn't, is not worth anything. You are worth the precious blood, immeasurable in value of God's only begotten Son. So I don't know what you do. I don't know how talented you are. I don't know where you come from, what job you do, how smart you are. But I know if you're a human being and you've been purchased by redemptive blood, bought out of the prison house at great cost because of the value of your soul and your life relationship, you have a reason to stand with great joy and confidence in your identity in Christ. But despite my high station, his station is higher and my need is greater. So the appropriate space mentally and actually is, I'm not, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not special enough to merit anything from God. I'm going to humble myself. And least of all, I can't overcome the depraved humanity that's the result of Adamic Adam's fall. I can't. I've been to seminary. I've been a pastor a long time. I read the Bible a lot. I actually teach it from time to time. Not enough. It's not enough. I need what God provides. And it's great enough, but it's only dispensed to those who humble themselves. Listen, humility is not a gift you receive. It's a choice you make. You'll never find humility in the fruit of the Spirit list. What you will find is over and over again, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Elevation isn't self-elevation any more than satisfaction is self-satisfaction. Because Christianity is about what God does graciously for those he saves. 
So you can go to Grace Church for a long time and know a lot of stuff and it won't get you home. Because humility is necessary and humility has characteristics. That's what verses 6, 7 through 9 talk about. 7 through 9, 10 verbs, 5 categories that communicate what humility actually looks like. How do you know you're humble enough? Because you always stand and wait and let somebody go first? What are the measurable attributes that define the humility that invites the blessing of God? In order to taste greater grace, it is necessary to begin by acknowledging our utter and complete inability to help ourselves to admit I am a worldly man and throw... I have a need. And humility in verse 10 begins and ends this section. You may wonder what kind, what does this kind of humility look like? How do I know when I'm humble? The opening conjunction in verse 7, therefore. Do you see it? Therefore ties it back to the promise of verse 6. God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, you being a desiring recipient of greater grace, aware and acutely aware that you need such grace, submit, therefore, to God. Category one, verb number one, submit to God. Resist the devil, number two. And he will flee from you as an attendant promise. And housed in that is the recognition. Who's the God of this world? He is. What does he do? He manipulates personally and by way of delegation to the hierarchy of evil in the fallen host. And through the world that he controls. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So you need to resist him if you're going to overcome the world. Draw near. Third category, draw near to God. So the first one involves subordination, submitting to God. The second one involves resisting the devil. That's confronting or standing strong. Number three, it's drawing near to God. That's devotion. And he will draw near to you. You need him and what he possesses. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Two verbs, one category. It has to do with cleaning up your life. Purification, repentance, verse 9, number 5. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Why? Because I recognize I need to repent. Let your laughter of foolishness be turned into mourning, your joy of empty things to gloom. In other words, sorry for your sin, a humiliation appropriate, an emotion real, sadness and sorrow over the recognition of my foolish condition. Five components, ten verbs define humility. How do you know? This is how you know. Number one, you submit to God. There is no person, the word submit is two words put together, preposition and a main verb, tasso. Tasso is to arrange, it's a military term. Hupo, arrange yourself under. This is the voluntary act 
of arranging yourself under the authority and leadership of someone else because you recognize their authority and their position. This is subordinating and subjecting my will to the greater will of the Father. Submission. Submission is the first action, which is the expression of needful humility. All of these are verbs that are in the aorist tense, and they're called ingressive aorist. They're urgent actions. They're not options, and they're not I'll do this later options or actions. They are urgent do-it-now actions. You want blessing and grace, do this right now. You know what I am? Prone to procrastinate. The desk where my books and my study notes are, a mess. Promise to Karen, we'll clean that up today. That was last Sunday. (laughs) Anybody like Harry? This is not a procrastination choice. This is a right now urgent choice. The ingressive heiress, I'll give you a flavor of it. When Peter was walking on the water and he began to sink, do you know what kind of verb he used when he said, save me? This one. Don't save me when you can get around to it. Save me right now. This is urgent action. Submit to God is urgent right now action. It's immediate. It's necessary. It's required and it involves submission, fighting against the current arrangement that wants to overthrow the proper arrangement. A.W. Tozer has written a great chapter on restoring the creature-creator relationship. Anybody read that? Okay, basically what it argues is God's God, you're not God, and the best thing you can do is arrange your behavior and thinking around the fact that he's God and you're not. He's the creator, you're the creature. You need to submit to him. He's God, he's king, he's sovereign. Not my will, Jesus incarnate, functionally doing the work of God on the earth, revealing God to us, living life as a human being in front of us. God, very God, the Son, says to the Father, what? Not my will, but thine be done. If Jesus said that in his earthly journey, guess what Harry ought to say right now? That. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy... There's a vivid example of a guy under authority. Because Tasso is a military term. It'd be like a general and a private, and the private actually knows what the proper response to the officer would be. You know what they do? Sir, yes, sir. It's not let's have a debate. It's unless, you know, permission to speak freely. Well, unless permission is granted, guess what the right answer is? Sir, yes, sir. That's authority. Tasso, I'm arranged under that authority. Listen to what uh, the centurion, the military man, said, aware of authority and the response appropriate to it. Verse 5, Matthew 8, Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion, came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. 
Now we'll look at verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come un, under my roof. Your station is so much higher than mine. It's a way of saying you're an elevated person. I'm not worthy. I'm a humble person. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now here's the key verse, verse 9. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. You want a commentary on submission? There's one. He says it, I do it. Sir, yes, sir. The Bible is submission to God. The Bible is the revelation of the will of God. It's total subordination, willful submission to the will, way, and when of God. And God's will is primarily revealed in God's word. It is self-subordination that leads to obedience. You want to enjoy greater grace? You get it if you're humble. And you know what humble people do? Right now, not tomorrow, not later in the day, they submit willfully and willingly. They acknowledge the authority and they obey the prescriptive will of that authority. It's what citizens do to government. It's what angels and powers do with regard to Jesus' authority. 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 3, 21. It's what slaves do with regard to masters. Titus 2, 9. 1 Peter 2, 18 and 19. It's what slaves do to masters. It's what wives do with husbands. It's what children do with parents. Let me tell you what a wife isn't lesser. Any more than Jesus was lesser. And John said it all last week, so if you were here, you're probably remembering this. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It is fitting in the Lord. It's the way God designed it. It's not a lesser thing. You both bear his glory. Jesus wasn't lesser. He was just subordinating his will to the will of the Father functionally to achieve the goals of God in the world in which we live. That's what a woman does when she submits to her husband. That's what Sarah did to Abraham. and You know his story. It wasn't the perfect story of zealous faith. She called him Lord, and John said, I think appropriately, I'm not sure that's the best label. She did it. Pick a label that says, I respect you. Whatever that is, this is, and it's to God. It's surrender and subordination to the will of God and the way of God. It is not my will, but thine be done. Read a story this week. I'll close with this because I see we're out of time. Do you know who General William Booth is? 1850s late. He founded an organization called the Army. It was the response to the poor of London. And J. Wilbur Chapman interviewed him, and it was set up because it was a Christian army. It became the Salvation Army because it wasn't Christians who volunteer in the army of God. It's people who are saved, advancing the gospel, an army, and it's very militaristic. They had uniforms and flags. They're just recognizing, man, we're in this. We're committed to this. 
J. Wilbur Chapman, an evangelist from the United States, interviewed William Booth because it was the most influential Christian ministry for social need. They met all kinds of needs for the poor and the disenfranchised. This is what I read this week. J. Wilbur Chapman asked General Booth at the age of 80, so about the age of our pastor, he's getting asked this question. Please tell us the secret to your impact, influence, and spiritual vitality. And this is what he said. And Chapman says, he said it with tears in his eyes coming down his cheeks at 80. He said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and the vision of what Jesus Christ could do through me with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and therefore all the influence of my life. Dr. Chapman said when he walked away, he said, it was undeniable that the greatness of this man's influence and earthly power was the measure of his surrender. George Mueller says, there was a day when I died, orphanage George Mueller, powerful I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. I'll tell you what those men weren't perfect or any different than you with regard to the humanity and the challenges thereof. What they are is testimony to the essential beginning of humility. I'm submitting. So as I wrap today, are you submitted? And are you submitted right now? Are there things that you know that you're delaying to do or adjust? Do it today. You don't want God to oppose a proud person who's determined to do your will, not his. Can you say amen to that? We're going to talk about resisting the devil next week. Isn't it interesting? Resist the devil. Where did that come from? Because he's the king of the world. He's the God of this age. You don't want to resist God. You don't want God resisting you. You need to resist him. How do you do that? That's next Sunday, Lord willing. Father, thank you for the time today. I do love the Bible. And I need it. David said in Psalm 119, your word is exceedingly refined. Therefore, your slave loves it. Lord, it is gourmet soul food. And we want to love it because it's life-giving. We feed on it. It's soul-transforming. And it's life-changing. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.